The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Part 2. Constituting a Nation According to a People's Sovereign Will. Chapter 3. Finding a Place to Start. If Australia is to start again, where does it start? There are several places we could start from. For instance, we could start with the current constitution and examine what's good and bad about it in the context of the values of today's society and the nation we have inherited and modernised since 1901. We could ask how well it reflects our current values and we could look at how well it reflects our actual arrangements for our governance as they are now. Were we to undertake that exercise we would find that the Constitution is discordant with today's values, including the values that might be expected in a multicultural, gender-equal, universally enfranchised, class-conscious but relatively wealthy society. We would find that, as far as multiculturalism goes, the Constitution is racist. On gender equality, it is silent, and women are as absent from mention in it as Aborigines. On suffrage... It is still back with the Dark Ages, incapable as it is of comprehending anything beyond the rule of old white men of limited religious, that is, solely Christian, persuasion. On distribution of wealth, it contemplates little more than the need to protect claims on the colonies of Australia as, quote, possessions of the Queen, and to admit, such as the royal largesse, those possessions formally into her Commonwealth, unquote. In that respect, we would find it disregards what we know now, that the continent was possessed by Britain on deeply dubious legal premises, even by the standards in international law of the day, inasmuch as it rested on an assumption now acknowledged by the High Court to be false, namely that Australia was an unsettled continent, terra nullius, before colonisation. As Henry Reynolds has demonstrated, from at least the 1850s onwards, quote, the legal foundations of the colony were unsound and remain so to this day. Possession of the continent as a British property was an act of theft on a truly heroic scale, unquote. As such, were we to assess the legitimacy of the nation's constitution at Federation as a British colonial possession, we would be faced with a chasm of difference between the unquestioning representation of the rightness of the annexation of Australia by Britain in the Constitution and what today's courts have acknowledged in law since 1992 when, quote, despite themselves, as Reynolds has observed, the High Court judges in the Marbo case changed property law forever and intimated that the traditional doctrine relating to sovereignty might eventually have to change as well. Unquote. Since the Marbo judgment, which established that native titles survived the British claim of sovereignty, and the Wick judgment four years later, which established that pastoral leases also did not extinguish pre-existing native title, the gap between the basic false premise of the nation as it was taken for granted in the Constitution and the truth about a pre-existing sovereignty which has never been ceded is now a gap too wide to ignore. 
It is also unlikely that a gap that wide could be bridged by piecemeal amendments to the Constitution. Confined as it is to the single sovereign model of the Hobbesian modern state, a few amendments to existing chapters would be insufficient to accommodate more than one sovereignty, either an Indigenous sovereignty that coexists with that of the Crown, as called for in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, or a sovereignty of the people that is capable of establishing self-determination. It simply isn't designed for that purpose. If the Constitution is to be made capable of supporting a coexistence of sovereignties, its capacity will need to be amplified beyond its current framework for distribution of power. Finally, were we to undertake an assessment of how well the Constitution reflects our current arrangements for power sharing and governance, we would find multiple mismatches between what it says about the powers of the Federal Parliament and Executive Government, the Governor-General, the States and the Judicature, and what actually pertains in the arrangement of power now. There are multiple sections that can no longer be active but are still retained. They sit there like strange ghosts of regimes past. For instance, the Constitution originally provided for appeals from the High Court and State Courts to the British Privy Council, but this was abolished in 1986 without amendment to the Constitution itself. It also still provides that the Queen, or King, under Section 1, is, quote, part of the Parliament, unquote, and that under Section 61, quote, the executive power of the Commonwealth is vested in the Queen and is exercisable by the Governor-General as her representative, unquote. In the wording, the sovereign of what is now a foreign country still presides over lawmaking in Australia. In 2022, most Australians would assume she, or he, as the case may be, is merely a figurehead who does not exercise any executive power. But as far as the Constitution goes, she, or he, still retains that power, and this applies despite the fact that in 1931, under the Statute of Westminster, Britain unilaterally revoked its sovereign power to enact laws that applied in Australia. Britain tried to shake us off as a dominion subject to its laws, and in reality did, particularly once World War II came around, the Japanese invaded Singapore, and the King's Australian subjects were deserted. But at least as far as the Constitution was concerned, Australia was still not prepared to fully cut the apron strings. We retain these remnants of past colonial ties, even as we promote ourselves as a proud, independent country. These are just a few examples of how Australia's constitution has become irrelevant to how we live, how we govern ourselves, how we think of our country today, and how we describe our values. Since the constitution is so plainly out of date, we might assume then that all we need to do to make a new beginning as a nation is simply to bring the constitution up to date. But to opt for that method of starting again we would have to assume that our current governance arrangements are desirable and perfectly useful in their current form. We would have to assume that the system as we have it arranged now works and that it works for us. Let me not waste time here. There are no grounds to suggest that the system works for us and that Australians would assume that it does. 
as income and wealth inequality in Australia have widened and our natural environment has been plundered and trashed, far too many people have seen that our political system does not work for them and have called for change. They have suggested a myriad of reforms, most notably of the Senate, with some wanting to abolish it and others wanting to expand it, the transparency and openness of government proceedings and information, the transparency of lobbying and disclosure of conflicts of interest, voting systems and electoral laws, political donations, ministerial standards, codes of ethics, corruption prevention and investigation, the financial arrangements between the different levels of government, the war powers of the parliament, or more accurately, the lack of them, and the distribution of powers between the Commonwealth, the states, their parliaments and executive governments, the Governor-General, the courts and the territories. And that is all before we get to reforms the people want in the Constitution itself, such as inclusion of a Charter of Rights and a wider role for the people in participation on policy that affects them, for example, an Indigenous voice, and a People's Voice through citizens' assemblies or juries. Both the political system as we operate it now and the Constitution are grand failures in terms of meeting our minimum expectations for well-being and security. They have brought us to the brink of social, environmental and economic crisis. We are wealthy at the national level, but not secure as individuals, families or local communities. In the context of the success rate of our political system, it therefore makes no sense to assume that the only thing we need to do is update the Constitution so that it means what it says and says what it means. That approach might look like a practical option. Indeed, as Helen Irving has pointed out, quote, the Constitution could say what it means and mean what it says if we wanted it to, unquote. She goes on to explain that, quote, the Constitution belongs to the Australian people but it is almost impossible to understand by the majority of people without detailed guidance. This is not inevitable. If we want a new constitution, we can achieve it by means of referendum. We can alter parts, or we can alter the whole thing. We could change its words to make it say what it means and mean what it says without changing anything else about it. We could keep the same constitution by changing the constitution. Indeed, if we rewrote it, we could finally have the constitution we really have. Unquote. But why would we want to have the constitution we really have? Why would we want that if it enshrines a political and governance system that hasn't been working? Doubtless, there are some aspects of our governance system worth retaining because they do in fact work reasonably well if they're used well and in good faith. The system of responsible government, for instance, works well when used well. The Australian government solicitor describes this system as follows, quote, The principle of responsible government is basic to our system of government and underlies our constitution. Under this principle, the Crown, represented by the Governor-General, acts on the advice of its ministers, who are in turn members of and responsible to the Parliament. It is for this reason that Section 64 of the Constitution requires ministers to be or become members of Parliament. Unquote. This contrasts sharply with the American system, where the Cabinet members are not elected to Congress, they are the Captain's pick, that is, they are appointed by the President, and are therefore 
not accountable to Congress, which means they cannot be held accountable by the people at the ballot box, although they can, of course, be held accountable by the American courts sometimes. So if we compare the US system with the Australian system of responsible government, there are undoubted advantages in the Australian system, at least in terms of the dual regard ministers in executive governments might accept that they should have both to the electors and the courts. The logic of Australia's system is that if the members of the executive government are also elected members of parliament, then the executive has a higher degree of responsibility and accountability back through the parliament to the people, and the people have somewhat more control over how governments administer Commonwealth institutions and services. This is all good in theory, but it can only work if the Constitution compels the elected to use the system of responsible government well and in accordance with the public interest. Decidedly, Australia's Constitution does not do that. For a start, the oath of office that must be taken by all those elected to Parliament under Section 42 of the Constitution in no way requires them to use the system of responsible government well, let alone for purposes of the public good. The public good, or the public interest, is not even articulated in the Constitution, and the only purpose of the oath of office is to compel elected members to, quote, bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Victoria, her heirs and successors according to law, unquote. This doesn't even require those we elect to support the Constitution, let alone Australians. In summary, while the system of responsible government offers an advantage over the American system, it negates that by not charging elected parliamentarians with an obligation to the electors, not one single obligation. This could, of course, be ameliorated, at least to some extent, by an amendment to the Constitution along the lines suggested by the Australian Republican Movement, the ARM, in their Australian Choice Model for a Referendum to Make Australia a Republic, released in January 2022. The ARM has suggested that the current oath should be replaced with an oath requiring Members of Parliament and an Australian Head of State to swear that, quote, I will be loyal to the Commonwealth of Australia and the Australian people whose constitutions and laws I shall uphold, unquote. This is a move in the right direction, and if it turns out to be all that Australians are offered, then it would be a positive increment of change that should not be rejected by people wishing to increase the accountability of their governors to them. But the new oath and a range of other equally worthy amendments suggested by the ARM are confined largely to, one, setting the rules and system for electing heads of state from among the Australian people, two, crimping the powers of heads of state in relation to assenting to laws, and three, narrowing the occasions when they can exercise power as a head of state without the advice of the Executive Council Cabinet. These are vital amendments for the constitution of a supposedly independent nation. But even if we assented to these amendments, we would still only have a constitution that at best superficially requires the elected to be loyal to the Australian people and the Commonwealth. A generous interpretation of what the word Commonwealth might mean in the context of a useful constitutional oath might be the public welfare, general good or advantage, 
that is, what began in the 15th century as the common weal, but what today we would call well-being. But it is more likely to mean something other than the people and their interests, perhaps just a federation of states. As such, this sort of oath would be superficial because it would provide no guidance, specific or even non-specific, on what the elected should be loyal to. No terms on which power may be rightly exercised, no indication of what well-being even means for us. Moreover, Australians would have no more in terms of human rights, no greater capacity or utility in their own constitution and governance than they do now, and no greater capacity and power to build the nation they want for the future. A constitution that does not say what the people of the nation freely value and what they want their commonwealth to become is fairly useless, both to electors and the elected. For the elected, were they to swear an oath to be loyal to the Commonwealth of Australia and the Australian people whose constitution and laws they shall uphold, what would it even mean? Loyal to what? Who knows? Who can say if, after all, the people of Australia themselves have not said what is the essential purpose of their coming together in an indissoluble Commonwealth, if they have not said what matters to them and what type of society they want the elected to be loyal to? And whose constitution is it anyway? If it's anybody's constitution, it is the property of the current nominal sovereign, King Charles III, or perhaps his Governor-General. It may be considered the property of the people, inasmuch as they are the only ones who can amend it, but at the same time, it is not their property, especially insofar as they cannot exercise their sole right to amend it without the permission of Parliament, and even then it can only be amended in terms agreeable to the Parliament. It is certainly not the people's constitution, inasmuch as they are not even mentioned as having a role in it beyond casting a vote, and their needs and will are not reflected in it. It is not the people's and can't be theirs until they are recognised in it as a party to be respected and accorded a fair and rightful share of power. Likewise, the laws made under it are not their laws. Indeed, it presumes far too much to claim that laws made by a form of state in which all power has been given away by the people to a sovereign decider will be laws to which the people of today would necessarily subscribe of their own free will. It might have been reasonable to assume that laws made with a fresh constitution in the first decade after 1901 were the people's laws, but not now. Laws being made in the 21st century are not distinguished, for instance, by the rights, freedoms and liberties they grant to Australians. Since 2001, those laws have been distinguished by the rights, freedoms and liberties they have taken away. Nor is the government obliged in any way to the people when making laws on annual budgets, taxation or even representation. In that regard, the elected have no obligation to provide for the well-being of the people. Their only obligation is to provide for the, quote, indissoluble federal commonwealth under the crown, unquote. That means the state, the queen's or king's commonwealth, not the people's common weal. The constitution provides strictly for a sovereign state, not a sovereign people, let alone a plural sovereignty. In effect, the Australian Constitution is designed to override the people's will. 
their voice is deliberately excluded. Accordingly, once those we elect attain power, as long as they attain it in accordance with the process for representative government laid down in the Constitution, they are not constrained from making and remaking the law entirely as they see fit, and those laws are usually to reinforce their power, not to share it. The Constitution really has nothing in it that constrains lawmaking to the will of the people once they have discharged their obligation to elect someone to represent them, to speak for them, and thereby to silence them, to extinguish their voice, or at least make it irrelevant to the final decision process. That is the rub with representative government. It is simply a mechanism to replace the will of the people with the will of the sovereign. That is its point. Its point is to create order and safety from war by replacing what Hobbes might have called a mass of competing parts, presumably incapable of anything but strife, with a single sovereign or sovereign entity such as a parliamentary government who shall decide without reference to or any further restriction by the people. Its point is to nail down a flimsy assumption that the voices of the people in their incessant strife will inevitably imperil them. It is to hammer into unquestioned, almost biblical scripture that order and peace can only be attained if all the people cede all the power to a single sovereign who then will speak for all on what counts as peace and what does not. It's a failure, of course, since peace has never eventuated from the great modern Western states. No Western society has yet tested whether humans are capable of something other than strife. At least, they have not established political and governance arrangements that would enable societies to experiment with systems built on an assumption that the members of a nation, and individual nations for that matter, can work together in an inclusive diversity to achieve a peaceful coexistence and thereby secure our well-being and future as we might prefer to express and experience it. At present, all the governance arrangements in both autocratic and democratic societies are geared for the opposite purpose of excluding the voice of the people in fashioning peace and their preferred destiny. Australia's constitution is no exception. In that context, it will take a lot more than a referendum every now and then to make a constitution that is an instrument of the state into a constitution that is an instrument of the people. This is not to say that incremental amendments are worthless, but we can also contemplate the possibility and advantages of an entirely new constitution. As Helen Irving has pointed out, we can alter parts or we can alter the whole thing. It's just that altering parts is likely to deliver less power than we the people need if we wish to build a future of well-being and security for all. To the extent that any piecemeal changes, such as amendments to replace the Governor-General with an Australian Head of State, contribute to the modernisation and independence of our nation, they can be a good place to start. But if the exercise is reduced to one that will merely bring the Constitution into line with the way our state apparatus and power system works now, then we should not expect much in the way of rights, freedoms, liberties, national maturity, social capacity or power. 
If, in establishing Australia as a republic, we are hoping to gain independence, it will be a fairly muted form of independence, one with significant limitations in terms of strengthening our democracy. It will be powerful in its symbolism and give a boost to our view of ourselves as a nation prepared to stand on its own two feet. That is worth quite a lot. But otherwise, it will simply reinforce the power system almost exactly as it is now. It will simply transfer sovereignty from Westminster to Canberra. If the object is to build a new type of sovereignty, one that is plural, the many in the one instead of the one over the many, then we will need more than piecemeal changes which in reality are likely to have little or no effect on our capacity to secure our future well-being and which will do little more than reinforce the sort of top-down, exclusive, colonial power system that appears to have now brought the world to the brink of disaster. In short, adapting an out-of-date constitution so that it reflects and even more deeply entrenches a proven ineffective power system is not the best starting point. It will not help a nation start again. If the exercise is to build a constitution which still doesn't enable the people to express their sovereign will, it will be a largely useless exercise for purposes of making a new start. And this will pertain regardless of whether Australia becomes a republic. I would reiterate that this does not mean Australia should not become a republic, much less overthrow systems of representative democracy. But if we contemplate that at this moment in our history, and indeed in human history itself, a new start for the nation is vital to our survival and well-being, and that the moment for that new start must be sooner rather than later, then there are things that are essential to that start and the speed with which we might bring it about. In the following chapters, I will cover those essentials.